Thank you, choir. I would invite any children here, kindergarten to first grade, who'd like to go to Children's Church. You can uh, find that uh, in the, the back of the sanctuary in the foyer. Children's Church teacher will be there to meet you. And we invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's on page 179 in the Pew Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7, page 179. So we continue our study through Deuteronomy. And let me begin by reading verses 1 and 2. It's good to be back with you after men's retreat last weekend. We had a really great men's retreat. Just a reminder, the women's turn is next. The women's retreat is coming up in March. So uh, you can find more information about that in the bulletin. But I hope you ladies are taking advantage of that to be encouraged in the faith the way the men have been. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let me read the first two verses. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Today we come to one of those really challenging passages in the Bible, one of those texts that's rather thorny, Um, because here in this passage we have Moses preaching to the Israelites. They're on the edge of the promised land, and Moses is commanding the Israelites not just to go into the promised land, but to basically exterminate all of the inhabitants of the promised land, to to kill all of the Canaanites. And uh, this is one of those texts that's it's just hard at first glance to know what to do with. Um, it's one of what those texts you might call a doubter text. It's a reason people have doubts sometimes about the Bible or its message. God commanding the Israelites to kill all the Canaanites. Uh, this is the kind of text that your uh, skeptic or atheist friend at work or at school will throw in your face and say, you know, uh, this is why I don't like religion. People get into religion, then they get all hyped up and they think they have divine justification to do whatever they want to do. And and so people say, that's why I'm not into organized religion, because people use it as uh, an authorization to do terrible things to each other. And here's here's an example. Uh, Even those who aren't skeptics or atheists have to look at this passage and say, you know, what do we do with this, especially considering some of the, the modern dynamics under which we live? You know, there are people who flew planes into buildings to kill anyone and everyone because they believed they had divine authorization to do that. They believed they were obeying God as they understood Him and that based on that, they were killing people indiscriminately. And so it's like, then you read the Bible and we see that and we all say, yeah, that's terrible as we think about violent jihadism and uh, violent Islam. But then we read this and we go, well, look, here's the Israelites killing all of these these seven nations. Um, What do we do with this? It's a really hard text. I think we have to face that. 
And, and even as Christians, even those of us who like, yeah, I believe the Bible. You know, the Bible has changed my life. God has spoken to me from his word. I believe this is God's word. We have to ask, you know, what does this tell us about God? And, and what, how do I take this text where God is commanding the, the extermination of people and another text, you know, Jesus in the New Testament. What, how does Jesus fit into this? Jesus who said, love your neighbor, you know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Paul, who says, do not uh, repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. And then you have this passage like this. It's like, how does this, how does it all fit together, even if I'm one who believes in God's word? And so, so it's a really challenging text. It's a huge topic. It's, it's a bit of a can of worms. And so, uh, you know, as I was thinking about this, you could do a whole Sunday school series just on this question and all of the related rabbit trails philosophically, politically that you could take you down. And I really don't want to do all that this morning because I don't have time. Uh, but, but so I thought, well, what, what can I do that would be helpful here in the, in the brief time we have together? And I thought what might be most helpful would be to sort of put those modern questions in abeyance just for a moment and, and try to just grapple with what is being said in this passage. In other words, before we, we read a text like this and jump in with all of our modern issues, which are legitimate, we should just say, what was this passage trying to say in its original historical and theological context? What, what really is going on in this text? And then maybe if we have a handle on that, that might help us kind of then think it through more effectively and as we sort of do that, that difficult task of synthesizing God's word with our lives in the real world. So uh, what I want to do this morning is I'd like to make five observations about this text. And, and these observations just kind of sort of come by going paragraph by paragraph through chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. But I want to make five observations that I think taken together help sort of place this seemingly uh, violent commandment within a, a theological and cultural context that will help us understand it better. So here are five observations, and the first one's rather simple. The first observation I want to make about this text is that this is a commandment to, to wage a holy war, if you want to call it that, against a very specific enemy, a very specific group of people. Look again at verse 1. God, God is going to drive out the, and he names them, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Okay, probably some termites too. But uh, all these ites, there's all these people. And, it's, and they're all going to be driven out of the land of Canaan. And, and God is going to do this. And, and notice he says there's seven nations. They're named, they're numbered, it's specific. And so this is not a biblical rationalization to use force or coercion to convert the world. You will not find anywhere in the Bible a general commandment authorizing Old Testament Israel or New Testament church to use force and to use violence to bring about the conversion of the world. You can't convert anyone with force anyway. Not in a biblical sense of conversion. That's a change of the heart. Not something that you can bring about through law or through the sword. And, and so, so, so you just don't have that in Scripture. What you have is a very specific, limited instance of God calling Israel to do a specific task. Um, in fact, if you'll remember in Deuteronomy 2, we, we looked at this several weeks ago. I think Pastor Chris, our youth pastor, preached on this. But, but God not only told Israel who to go after, He also told them who not to go after. You know, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, for instance, 
Go back to Deuteronomy 2, verse 4. So as the people were traveling toward the promised land, God said, they're off limits, they're off limits, you can't touch them. Look at Deuteronomy 2.4. Give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war. For I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. Or verse 9. The Lord God said to me, Do not harass the Moabites. Or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Or verse 18. Today you're about to pass by the region of Moab at R. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. So, so you get this very strong sense of the sovereignty of God in ordering the nations. God saying, look, this is yours, that is yours, Israel gets this, you can't touch that. If you try to touch it, it won't succeed, I'm not giving it to you. And, and you get the sense of God right, raising up nations, bringing them down according to his sovereign plan. God is doing that all the time. He is guiding the nations. We just don't know what he's doing until after the fact. This is one of those cases where God actually told somebody what he's doing. You know, it's one of those instances where he, he gives Israel a little peek into his plans, and he's saying, look, this nation I've given to these people. I've given this land to them, and, and you're not to mess with it. You know, this is a land I'm giving to you over here, but not that land. And, and so we see God's sovereignty in doing a very specific movement of, of nations, one into another. So, so to compare this text to, to modern uh, jihadism is really a, a bit anachronistic. Because this is not a commandment, this is not justification to go take over the world. I mean, the, you know, the idea of jihad in, in its sort of violent forms is, is that, look, convert or die. You know? And the goal is to have, really, at least among the proponents of it, a, a universal caliphate, a, a universal one world Islam where everybody submits to it. That's not here in this passage. This is a very specific, limited kind of thing. Now, it still leaves the question, okay, so, all right, fine, it's limited, but why those seven people? Why did they get wiped out? Well, good question. Let's look at the next two observations that I think help us. Here's my second observation, is that there was a real concern that if the Canaanites remained in the promised land and the Israelites came in, that the Canaanites would corrupt the Israelites very quickly by their religion. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. I'm back to Deuteronomy 7 now. Verse 3. Moses says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. You see the same fear expressed later on in chapter 7 and verse 16. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Why? Do not look with them on pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. Or even verse uh, 25 at the end of the chapter. What are they supposed to do with the, the idols and the statues of the Canaanites, the gods of the Canaanites? Verse 25, the images of their gods are to burn in the fire. So it's not just a holy war against the people, it's a holy war against their gods. You know, burn their images in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, in other words, on the statues, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it. For it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house 
or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Utterly abhor and detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. So it's like, look, even when you, you conquer the land and you go into someone's house and there's a nice silver statue, don't pull out your little pocket tool and sit there and try to, you know, work the silver overlay off the wooden statue and then take it, you know, put it in your pocket. I mean, just burn it all. Get rid of it all because you're going to get ensnared. You're going to get pulled into this religion. So, you know, apparently then the, the Canaanite religion was, was so virulent, it, it was so spiritually toxic, it, it was so spiritually contagious that God was like, look, there's only one way to deal with this. We just have to not have this around you because it will infect you. And, and we sort of, you know, from what we can gather from Scripture and from um, ancient history, you know, the Canaanites had developed a, a sort of particularly toxic kind of spirituality and religion. Uh, they were not just your kind of typical idolaters. It's not just that they worshipped the sun and the moon and the river like uh, other people did. But, but the Canaanites practiced a kind of fertility religion. They worshipped Baal, who was their god, and they worshipped Ashtoreth, who was Baal's uh, woman. And, and it was, their religion was all about these two and their sexual relationship producing fertility upon the land. So Canaanite religion was hypersexualized. Um, to participate in the religious services, you, you went to prostitutes, male prostitutes, female prostitutes, depending on your preference. And, and, and so the, the land of Canaan had really developed a kind of anything-goes sexuality and morality. Um, the Canaanite religion involved sacrificing children in the fire to their gods. And so it had really become a kind of moral cesspool. And it had reached that point you know, where God sometimes says, Enough is enough. I'm done with this culture. And I'm going to pull the plug and drain the cesspool because it's, it's so bad. And God sometimes reaches that place. It's not our decision, but it's his decision. And so apparently he was saying this is what's going to happen with the land of Canaan. If you Israelites go in there and we don't get rid of this stuff, you're going to go right into what they're doing because it will suck you in. It's too powerful. And so you need to to cut it off completely. And you know, there's times in our lives as Christians where there are things that we need to just cut off out of our lives because there's no way we can sort of live in tension with it. It's just going to pull us down. And when we find those things in our lives as Christians, we have to be done with, with those things. In fact, it's interesting, as you go to the New Testament, you do find kind of holy war-esque language in the New Testament at different places. It's different in that Christians aren't, aren't ever authorized anywhere in the New Testament to actually use you know, violence or force against anyone else. It's, it's not what Christ calls us to. But he does call us to wage a holy war against ourselves in the sense of attacking sin in our lives. So check this out. Put a bookmark here. This is really interesting. We're going to go to the New Testament book of Colossians chapter 3. It's on page 1167 if you're using a pew Bible. Colossians chapter 3, page uh, 1167. And look how the Apostle Paul uses this uh, kind of language of lethality and killing and death. It says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died 
And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. Boy, I wish I could do a whole sermon just on those four verses. You know, I'm I'm in Christ. My old life is dead. I'm, I'm alive in Jesus. He's coming again. He is my life. Okay, but now, in light of that, verse 5, what should you do? Put to death, therefore. You hear that language? Kill. Exterminate. What? Your, your next door neighbor who's, who's not a Christian who plays his music too loud? No. We never have anything like that in the New Testament. What am I to put to death? Whatever belongs to my earthly nature. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Lust. Evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. And he gives us some more. Anger, rage, malice, that that heart intent to harm someone else, slander, and filthy language. Don't lie to each other. All of these things need to, to be exterminated from our lives. I look in my heart and I see Cana. I see Canaanite in me. And I need to exterminate that, that Canaanite impulse that still lives within me because I belong to Christ now. That, that, that old self is dead. And so when you become a Christian, there is this process of leaving behind and going forward. We leave behind the old. We leave behind that life that Jesus saved us from. And, and we go to follow Him. But the thing is, old habits sometimes die hard. And so there's a process of Finding you know, these things from my, the way I used to behave and the way I used to deal with people and the way I used to handle conflict and the way I used to handle stress come up. And I, I respond in sinful ways and that's when I need to take out the sword and kill this stuff in my life. You could also argue that, uh, that we as Christians are, are called to a kind of holiness in the church. Just as Israel was called to be holy and, and so... Uh, and we're called to be holy as Christians, the church is called to be holy. And so there is a kind of sense in which the church has to strive for purity too as a body. Um, You know, we're not allowed to harm each other in the church physically, but there is a place that Jesus teaches about what we sometimes call church discipline. So if there was somebody in a congregation of believers who suddenly got caught in some really obvious sin that is pretty much just sticking out there... uh, and you love that person, you go to them and you say, hey, I love you, but what are you doing? What's going on? You can't live like that. Come on, come on, come on. Come back to your senses. Let's, let's, let's follow the Lord together. And the person's like, no, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. See, Jesus says, well, this, I'm paraphrasing Jesus, but basically go and get someone else. Bring another person. Hey, both of us see what you're doing. It's not right. You need to change this. No, I don't care. You can't tell me what to do. So then Jesus says, bring it to the whole church. And if they won't listen to the whole church, then the church is supposed to basically expel them and say, look, from where we're sitting, we don't see that you're behaving like a Christian. We want to believe you're a Christian. We don't even see it. So we're throwing you out of the church. And and so in a sense, there's a level of holiness that even Christ commands for us as a body. Not that we become legalistic, you know, spiritual, um, you know, Gestapo tracking each other down. But when it's right there in your face, sometimes you've got to deal with it as a body. Because a little yeast works through the whole dough and leavens the whole dough. And and so we need holiness in our lives and we need holiness in our church. And that's really what he's talking about there if you go back to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. Verse 6, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
Israel was to be holy to the Lord. We're to be holy to God and belong to Him to be His holy people. So that's the second observation is that this invasion was there's a level of holiness and purity that was involved and the people they were invading had really reached a point of kind of an apex of moral degeneration and God had determined their time was up. Third observation is that these these this land, these seven nations that were being ejected, who were being destroyed by the Israelites, they inhabited a land that God had promised to give to Abraham. So that's the third observation. This was not some random attack. This was not some sort of blanket authorization to just kill anyone who gets in your way. This was specifically God had promised Abraham to give Abraham's descendants a certain very well-defined piece of geography, and now they were going in to to take it over and attack it. Um, So you look down at verse 7 of Deuteronomy 7. It says, The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest. Of all people. So God isn't giving you this land because you're somehow better than others. This is not some ethnic superiority thing. You guys are kind of, you're a pretty pathetic nation, really. But God's doing this, verse 8, because the Lord loved you and kept his oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out of hand, uh, out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God. So not only is God sovereign and can put nations where He wants, not only is He holy, He's also faithful. So His, his driving out of the Canaanites through, the, through means of the Israelites was really a fulfillment of a promise He had made to Abraham to give the descendants of Abraham this land. It might be helpful to go back and read that passage. Put a bookmark here again. Let's go to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 15. And let's read that original promise given to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. It says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. And so he's talking about the Israelites in Egypt. Right? Verse 14, But I will punish the nation they serve. He's going to punish Egypt as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Where? To the land of Cana. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So this is one of those cool scenes where where God basically tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. So many times we just wonder, what in the world is God doing? God, I don't know how any of this makes sense. God, why is it happening this way? You know, so many times we just wish, God, would you just tell me what you're up to? And so often, most of the time, he doesn't. He just says, hey, trust me. Trust me. What are we doing? Where are we going? Why are we going this way? Trust me. But every once in a while, he lets us know what he's doing. And here's one of those cool places in the Bible where God's like, okay, you want to you know what's going on? Okay, let me show you a little bit right here. Boop, here's a peek. You know, this is about all you can handle right now, Abram. Boop, there it is. You got it? I'm going to give you one little peek. And suddenly we see the complexity of God's plans for the world. We, we get this little tiny, you know, pinhole peek at, at the, 
the super complexity of everything that God has planned for all humanity and the ways he works all things together. So notice what happens. There's two things being addressed here. One is that Israel is going to come back to the promised land. So Abraham's in the promised land. God says, your descendants are going to go to Egypt. They're going to go to slavery. Then I'm 400 years from now, I'm going to bring them back here. 400 years. That's how long it's going to take to do. I'm going to bring them right back here, and they're going to get the promised land. And then you get this little kicker at the end. See verse 16. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, who are the Amorites? That's just another name for the inhabitants of Cana. They had lots of names, you know, those complex people groups. But one of the things the Canaanites are called is Amorites. So it's like, it's like look, I'm going to be doing a lot of things here. I'm going to bring you back, but I'm also going to use that timing to get rid of these Amorites. Because 400 years from now, their sin will have reached its full measure. They will have reached a point of maximum toxicity that God can handle. They will have reached a point of, of the cesspool will now be full. And so in God's sovereignty, he works his plan for Abram together. He works his plan for the Amorites together. And, and it all comes together. And he's like, look, I'm going to do all this at once. I'm just letting you know I'm going to do that. And then he shuts the little peak hole and we don't know what he's doing. <laughs> but he wanted to show us a little bit. And so what's happening then is, is that the expulsion and the destruction of the Canaanites is part of a master plan of fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham along with his judgment on these people who God had determined their, their time was up. God had said, I've had enough. And it all came together at once. So what I take out of that is God is faithful. He always keeps His promises. God never defaults on His promises. God never goes back. He doesn't always do it in our timetable. He always keeps His promises. And how encouraging that is for us because we too are still waiting for our land as Christians. As Christians, we, we, are, we are pilgrims and sojourners in this world. We're not like Israel. We have not been given a land. God didn't form the church and say, now I would like you to get in boats. I'd like you to row to New Zealand. And Christians are going to take over New Zealand. And New Zealand is going to be Christian island, you know. And, and when you become a Christian, you go to New Zealand. It doesn't work that way. God, God hasn't given us a land. Our land is, is a heavenly kingdom. Uh, the, the, the land we're waiting for is called the new heavens of the new earth. We study in Revelation, it's called the new Jerusalem. It's the city of the living God. The book, writer of Hebrews says it's the city whose uh, um, you know, author and builder is God. It's the city whose foundations God is going to lay. Jesus was here on this earth. He's talking to Pilate. And, and Pilate's like, are you a king? And Jesus says, yeah, I'm a king. You know, where's your kingdom? My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, we'd whoop you. <laughs> you know, my, my, my followers would fight and I'd call down ten legions of angels and this would all be done. My kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom is still coming. And, and so now as Christians in this world, we don't live like Israelites settled. We live like Abraham sojourning. You know, Abraham was in the promised land, but he had to live as a stranger. He had to live right there along with all the, the pagan peoples, and he had to get along with them and learn to deal with them and put up with things and, and learn how to live in that tension. And that's where we are as Christians. We're in this tension. We're not at our home yet. And, but it's good to know that God is faithful, and he's going to bring us home. He is going to fulfill his promises. I just think that's so encouraging because sometimes it is very tiring and very discouraging to sojourn. It's like it gets tiring living in a tent. It gets tiring living from place to place. It gets tiring being the only Christian where you work or in your school or in your family. It's really hard 
just trying to be faithful to God with your spouse who just doesn't get it and they're going the opposite direction from God. You're like, how long? You know, this is so hard, God. You know, my, or my kids, I'm trying to tell them about God and they just seem to ignore it and go off in their own direction. Or, or you know, I'm trying to follow God, and, and, but I, I have this, you know, the sickness that I'm diagnosed with and my job looks sketchy right now. And, you know, why isn't God fixing all this? You know, why can't I be settled in the promised land flowing with milk and honey? It's like we're not there yet. We're on a sojourn. We're on a pilgrimage. We're walking the walk. It's very difficult. And it goes until the day we die. And then we look forward to the, the new place that God is making for us. So, so the Christian life is a sojourning life. It's, it's a pilgrim life. It's not a conquering, settled life. That's, that is still to come. So I think this passage gives us encouragement. Rather than befuddling us and puzzling us, which it can do to a degree, this passage should give us encouragement that God's faithful. He's, he has not forgotten you. Whatever you're going through is not a sign of divine abandonment. It's just welcome to planet Earth. But God is still with you, and He's faithful. And He's going to carry you through. He always keeps His promises. And if you're His child, you can't become not His child. And He has a plan for you. So just be faithful and trust Him and keep going another day, another hour, as we walk faithfully through this pilgrimage. Quickly moving there, observation number four. Number one, it was a specific group of people. Number two, God was protecting the holiness of Israel. Number three, uh, God is fulfilling a specific promise to Abraham. Number four is that the Israelites were subject to expulsion from the land as well if they did not keep the commandments. So Israel was not in some privileged position that they could just camp there either in the promised land. If they stopped keeping God's law, God's like, I'm going to kick you out. Hey, Israel, if you go Canaanite on me, guess what? I'm going to treat you like Canaanites. You're gone. So Israel had to obey the law too. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His promises and commands. But those who hate Him He will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate Him. So Israel, if you go the way of Canaanite God-hating religion, you'll be destroyed as well. Verse 11, Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. I love the first word of verse 12. If, if you pay attention to these laws, if you do that and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep His covenant of love with you as He swore to your forefathers. He'll love you, bless you, increase your numbers. He'll bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and oil, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, and the land that He swore to the forefathers to give you. He, uh, you'll be more blessed than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock or, uh, will be without young. The Lord will keep you from every disease. So basically, it's like you guys think these Canaanite gods are the fertility gods. God's the one who will give you fertility for your crops and your, your families. If, if, underline, you keep the covenant. If you don't keep the covenant then you're going to go the way of Cana as well. Now, of course, we know from the history of Israel that they didn't keep the covenant. They broke the covenant. They did not keep God's law. And so I think what the history of Israel does is it puts out in front of us, and I think this is one of the primary reasons for Israel's history, is it puts out in front of us a great story that reminds us that we cannot be right with God by simply trying to keep His rules. Because Israel tried it. And Israel couldn't do it. 
And we can't do it either. You know, if you think, hey, look, I'm, I'm a decent enough person. I'm good enough. I, I try hard. You know, I do my best. Yeah, I've, I've never murdered anybody. You know, you have all these... We have our little morality we make for ourselves that justifies ourselves. And we think that should be good enough for God. And it's like, man, Israel couldn't keep it right with God. Israel got expelled from the land. They had the Ten Commandments given to them literally by God. They had God's presence with them in an amazing way. And they couldn't keep the law. And so as I read the story of Israel, what I don't see is a self-righteous people who use their religion... As, as an excuse to go out and oppress people. What I see is, is a bunch of people who couldn't even keep God's rules and got kicked out themselves. And if anything, rather than making me self-righteous, I think it undercuts self-righteousness if you really study Israel's history. It undercuts any sense of, of I can do this or I'm worthy or I can keep God's laws or I'm somehow holy in and of my own efforts and merits because not even Israel, given everything they had, could keep the law. And so it should humble us rather than make us arrogant. And then the fifth, the fifth observation this is my final one. So, a specific people, God was told them to do this in order to protect their holiness. It was a specific promise to Abraham. Uh, Israel was not exempt. They too had to obey the law. And then finally, number five, and this, this is the one that, that really I think struck me as I thought about it. It's God who clears out the promised land anyway. That is God who wages this holy war. Israel just sort of tags along. Right? And I think that makes this different from any other claims to holy war or religious zealotry anywhere else. Is that it was very much God who did this thing. Not the Israelites in the name of God. It really was God who did it. You know, look at verse 17. You may say to yourselves... I'm back to Deuteronomy 7, verse 17. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? So as Israel stood on the edge of the promised land and God's like, I want you to go in there and exterminate them, Israel wasn't like, yeah, it's about time. You know, we're going to go in there and clean these people out. It wasn't like that. Israel, you know, they'd been like, what? Us? They're huge. We're small. There's a lot of them. There's a few of us. You know, it's, it's like, what has Israel been doing the last 40 years? They've been herding sheep. This is not Sparta. This is not a nation of samurais and ninjas, all right? This is, this is shepherds. You know, the people of Cana, they have walls, fortifications, chariots, armaments, armor, swords. The Israelites have sheep. And they have... You <laughs> know, I worked on that joke, and I'm so... I'm so thankful that man appreciated it. Thank you. I'll tell you. They had sheep. They had sticks. They had tents. They're shepherds. They, they haven't been weaponizing themselves. They haven't been militarizing themselves. They've not been drilling for minerals to forge into bronze armor and swords. I mean, th- these are a shepherd. They're like Bedouins. They're just out there with their tents and their sheep and their sticks. That's it. And God's saying, I want you guys to go overthrow these nations. It it cannot be done. This is an impossibility. So even the idea that Israel is going to go in and exterminate the inhabitants of Cana is is a military impossibility. So how did it happen? Why why is this even on the table and not just sort of a theoretical idea? Why is this even a possibility? Verse 18 
Do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Aha, that's how. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miracles, signs and wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the people you now fear. So God did a miracle in Egypt. The Israelites didn't fight their way out. This wasn't like Spartacus and the slave rebellion. The reason they got out of Egypt is God did a miracle. And guess what? When you get to Cana, God's going to have to do another miracle because you can't win there either. He's going to have to do things like, you know, make the walls of Jericho fall down if you're going to win this victory. It's going to be all His power. You know, verse 21, Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. Their confidence isn't in their military prowess, but in the fact that God is great and awesome. I love it. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's faithful. He's great and awesome. What a great chapter teaching us who God is. He's great and awesome. Verse 23, The Lord your God will deliver them over to you throwing them into great confusion until they're destroyed. So you're going to drop your battle lines and you're going to be there with your shepherd's staffs and, and you know, looking at these huge armies and suddenly they're going to go like woo, 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 right in front of you. They're going to be in confusion. They're going to start attacking each other and, and then you're just going to kind of go in and clean up. This isn't a holy war. It's a holy mop-up operation. God is the one who's waging the war. God is the one who's doing this miraculous thing. And, and so I, I, I think, you know, if there was ever a thought that somehow this... This text authorized us to use force or anything like that. I mean, this last observation just kills that idea. Because even the Israelites going to the promised land was a miraculous, unique event. As miraculous and unique as their exodus from Egypt. And so God said, I'm going to do something else. It, so Israel's story of their journey was bookended by miracles. You know, it was a miraculous beginning and it's going to be a miraculous conclusion by God's power. And so it was God who accomplished all these things. Which then, of course, raises the question, well, why, you know, about God and God doing these things. God acting in a way to to destroy people and to, to do this. And that's hard for some people to accept. But here's the question. Does God have the right to judge us? Does God have the right to judge me? Does God have the right to judge you? Or does He not have that right? Is he, is he the judge or not? Do I answer to Him or not? I think that's the question that just runs completely counter to our modern sensibilities. Because we don't want to think that I have to answer to anybody. You know? I don't answer to anybody. No. You answer to God who made you. You have to answer to Him. And he's, he's a holy judge. And when he decides to make people answer to him, they answer to him. Whether it was in the days of Noah, and that, that sort of miraculous judgment, or maybe Sodom and Gomorrah, or here he's making the Canaanites answer. In the first case, he used water. the second case, he used fire. In the third case, he used the shepherd's staffs of the Israelites. But, but whatever, it's God who judges. God holds us to accountable. We are accountable to God. And He has the right over our lives. He has the right over us. And, he, and no matter what we say or how we protest, God is in, on the throne and He's the judge and the king. And we owe Him. You know, God has rights. We have obligations. I'm obliged 
to obey Him, to do His will. I'm also obliged to love Him. And it's what Pastor Seth preached on last Sunday. For those of you guys who are at the men's retreat, he preached on Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. God has called me to love Him with everything that I have and it, because He's worthy. He's the highest good. And I just know in my life I haven't always loved Him that way. I, I love other things. And, and I should be held accountable for that. God is the judge. I was, um, I was at Best Buy this weekend, and I was looking at the big flat TVs. You, you go into Best Buy, and it's, I'm like a bug, like drawn to the light. You know, I just I see the TVs over there, and I kind of wander over. And I was trying to understand the, you know, they had a, the little pieces of paper telling about each TV, and it's, um, you know, it's statistics and features and how many megahertz it was and, you know, DPI and all this stuff and, you know, what, you know how, how you could buy it. And I was trying to make sense of it. And I had this lady come over, and she didn't work at the store. She's just some middle-aged lady shopper there. And she's like, oh, let me explain that to you. I was like, oh, okay. And, and she just, like, just starts rattling off all the statistics on this TV to me. You know, kind of like, she didn't work there. She's just a shopper. And, and so I'm kind of staring at her, you know. She tells me all about this TV. And, um, and, and then she goes, oh, she goes, my husband and I come here every weekend. We, we just like to come to Best Buy and just dream, you know. Like, like that's pretty honest. <laughs> that's why that's what we do. But you know, she had said the temerity to actually say what she's doing. I just like to dream, you know, just to come, just look around, just dream. Well, what if I had this? What if I had that? And just dream about these things. And, and you know, as it's reflecting on that, because I I do the same thing. I maybe just wouldn't say it so honestly. But it's like, how often do I say, you know, how often do I say like, yeah, I love just to get together every week with God's people, and just, we just get together and dream about what our new creation is going to look like. We, we, love to, we love to get together and just set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I love to hang out with, with a couple Christians and, and just encourage each other to keep looking to Jesus and think about how much greater He is than this world. I mean, you know, we don't talk that way. We, and, and because we don't love God, because we don't stand in awe of God, because I'm drawn to the, the glory you know, of the flat screens, like they're shining, and, um, I, and because I'm drawn to that, you know, I just start dreaming about this world, and it's so easy to do. And Paul told us that greed is idolatry. We read that this morning in Colossians 3. And so that's really what idolatry is. It's taking the awe, the wonder, the amazement, the dream that we have in us that was meant to be projected at God, and we just ignore God and we shift it down to things in this world. And the awe, the wonder, the amazement, the dream is pointed somewhere else. That's really the essence of idolatry. And God has a right to judge me for that because He is the greatest good. I, but by ignoring Him, I'm rejecting the greatest good and the most wonderful, beautiful thing there is. I'm, I'm spiting it and, and spurning it. And as we look to the New Testament, we find that, believe it or not, you, you can't run away to the New Testament to escape the Holy War because Jesus is coming back. Revelation 19 He's coming back as a warrior. Revelation 19, he's coming back on a horse. It's, it's not us cleaning the world up. It's Christ coming back someday as the judge to set the world right. There is one more great holy war coming in the Bible, but it's a holy war that comes from heaven down to earth, not something that we do. We just bear witness to Jesus, but he's coming back someday. And on that day, everyone will have to face Christ. Everyone will have to deal with him. Face to face, there'll be no escape. 
And either we will see Him as Savior and Lord or we will see Him as the judge. He will either be the Lion of Judah or the Lamb that was slain. He'll either be our Redeemer or He'll be the one to whom we, we answer. And, and the great thing about Jesus is that He came the first time to be that Savior, to rescue us. He died on the cross for our sins so that we, we could be forgiven. You know, this, maybe this is a different way to think about the cross. I love to think about the cross. I love to just think about it in so many different ways. The cross of Jesus is like a great diamond with so many facets. You could turn it so many ways and see the glory of God reflected in it from so many different angles. And here's another angle. Have you ever thought about the cross this way? At the cross, there was a great holy war taking place. As God the Father was executing holy war upon His own Son that the holy war that I deserve to receive from God because of my rebellion against Him was instead diverted and executed upon His beloved righteous Son so that my sins were attacked. My sins were exterminated. My, my sinfulness was dead and it was dead on the cross so that I don't have to die for my own sins. That's why it says in Colossians, I died with Christ. My, that, that's where I died. That was where the holy war was done upon me. And so God is coming back. He will straighten out this universe once for all forever. It will once again be the home of righteousness. God's kingdom will be over all. And He will deal with all sin and all evil in me too. Either on the cross or on the great day of judgment when I must face Him. But one way or the other, it will be done with. And so I would just plead with you to, to go to Christ. To turn to the Savior. Embrace Him as the Savior. Don't wait till you have to face Him as the judge. And Jesus comes to us. He comes to us at Best Buy. Jesus comes to us at, when we're sitting at the bar. Jesus comes to us when we're walking down the street. He comes to us when we're at, on the lacrosse field. He comes to us when we're in a waiting for a plane at the airport. He comes to us all kinds of crazy places. You just never know when He's going to come to you. And He just says, follow me. You know, Are we going to follow Him or not? Jesus comes to you right now. He says, follow me. And so take the nail-pierced hand and receive the salvation and enter into a life of joy and peace and hope that this world with all of its gadgets and with all the best buys it offers us, this world cannot offer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to say again how much we love You and we thank You that You would give up Your life to rescue us. Lord Jesus, thank You that You are both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain. And Lord, we embrace You as both. And God, we pray that You would cause us to, to love You and to value You and to treasure You above all else. Lord, Lord, we pray that we would see Your rights over us and that it would cause us to cling to the cross rather than to our own righteousness or our own uh, credentials. Lord, we, we pray that uh, You would cause us to be a people who go into the world humbly as You did, Jesus Lord, help us to remember that, Jesus, that you went to the cross first and then you got the crown. Help us not to reverse the order. Help us to remember, Jesus, that we must first carry the cross before we receive the crown. 
And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would give them strength in this life to go another week of taking up their cross daily and following you. Lord, give us strength to stay faithful despite all of the vicissitudes and hardships of life. Give us a picture of Jesus who faithfully went to the cross before he conquered. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd be faithful too. Lord, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, Jesus, who that you would just come up to them in their life sometime this week, Jesus, and just speak that, that secret word to the heart where you say, follow me. And they might know the joy and the adventure of following you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.